0: Good to see all of you. hope you've had a marvelous day. Are you enjoying the wretched hot conditions? Yes, yes. I hope that you enjoy sweating a lot. I tell you what we need more of here at Matthias' lot. I tell you what we need more of is that right there. What Jeremy just did, what he just said, the things he just communicated, that is what we need more of. And I know not all of you are worship leaders and have a microphone on a Wednesday night to communicate it but I'll tell you what, most of you are in lot families, most of you have relationships in this room that need that exact same moment, that broken confession. Jeremy was sitting in my, in my living room Saturday afternoon, or Sunday afternoon, and I was watching a broken man, and Jeremy looked me in the eyes and he said, Mark, I need more of Jesus. And I looked at him and I said, you know what, we need more of that, my brother. And so if you're here tonight and you're wondering like, what this church is all about, I want to welcome you if this is your first time, and I want to remind you That we're a community here that are journeying towards the gospel of Christ, recognizing that we don't have it all together. You're like, hold on a second. Like, that guy's a worship guy. Like, that dude should, he should have all of it. Like, this guy, if there's anyone that's perfect in this room, it should be that guy, you know? I mean, he has perfect biceps, but the other things too, you know? We're a bunch of messed up people in desperate need of Jesus. And so, if you're here and you're like, I'm messed up too, I want to welcome you. Because you fit right in. A sinner in desperate need of the grace of God. We've been studying, and guys, I'm so excited about tonight. We've been studying verse by verse through the Gospel of Luke. Can I point something out to you? The tendency when you study the Gospels, especially the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, is that you study so many parables. A parable, of course, is a story that Jesus uses that has this surface meaning, but then has this greater meaning. That you study so many parables that when you get to real stories with real people, that had real encounters with the real Jesus, it's sometimes hard to differentiate it. Are you guys with me? Like you study so many stories that have this like side meeting, that when we come to stories like tonight, that where Jesus encountered a real guy in history 2,000 years ago, it's sometimes hard to say, well, whoa, whoa, like this isn't just a fairy tale. No, no, no. Tonight happened. I- I've noticed this in my-, in my little girl, Avery. Little girl, she loves to read books, Right? And I've, I've seen that a tendency of hers is that we read the Bible, but we also read like, you know, like Little Bunny Foo-Foo or all these like other weird books, you know? What's, Heidi, what's one of her favorite books right now? What's one of those? I don't even know the titles. What's that one bunny one? It's like Bunny Hop, I Like the Hop or something like that. Anyway, just kids' books have the weirdest titles, you know? And so that's probably not it ever. But, but like when we read the Bible together and then when we, we read like Bunny Hop, like I can see that for her even, it's like, hold on a second, like they're both books. And so I've I've found myself in the last couple of weeks just really trying to communicate with my little girl that this book is completely different than this book. That this book is breathing and has life to it and is real. And bunny hop-hop, like bunnies do hop, but like the significance of this book is far less. And so to help you guys tonight, most of you guys have a bulletin on your chair I've included um, this story that we're going to be studying tonight. is found in all three Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So to help you guys mostly further study later on, I've included the Matthew and the Mark versions as well in a parallel uh, kind of setup here. Anything that's underlined in Matthew and Mark is different from the Luke account. Again, this is a classic account. It's, it's a famous story, and we're going to talk a lot about the differences between the, the Gospels. On the back is a list of 32 questions that in preparing for tonight, I studied. I looked over, I wrote down on my whiteboard. A few months ago, I, I did that in, a, in an actual teaching and took you guys through all the ways that I study. And so instead of doing that tonight, I just wrote them out for you as a way to, re- to remind each of us that studying the Scripture is in the easiest form just begins with questions. And one by one, you begin to search them out. So God willing, we will answer all 32 of those questions on the back of your bulletin. Open your Bibles to Luke chapter 18, my friends. I think one of the key parts to understanding tonight's story, and man, I'm serious, I'm, I'm excited, and so if there's points, I see no one sat in the front row, I purposely made it a little bit closer tonight just to kind of feel the warmth, you know, if things start flying out of my face, I apologize, but it's important tonight to understand the context of this story like always. Jesus is still amidst stories that have to do with entrance into the kingdom of God. Of God. Do you remember last week, what did he tell uh, the disciples about the little children? Unless you receive the kingdom of God like little children, you will never enter it. We've seen a couple stories in a row that talk about entrance into the kingdom or heaven. And so this story is not separated from those. It's another story where Jesus is going to talk about entrance into the kingdom, which should automatically open our eyes and say, this is pretty important. So Luke chapter 18, verse 18 says this, A certain ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So many curious things in this first verse. I love that. Can you guys all say curious with me? Yeah, so many curious things. Now, you'll notice Matthew and Mark, at the top of, uh, if you guys have your little bulletin deal, what does Matthew and Mark call the story? The rich what? The rich young man. Luke adds... The rich ruler. And so most times when you hear about the story, what do people say? It's called the rich young ruler. It takes Matthew, Mark, and Luke and combines them in all. First of all, this guy is hes a ruler of some kind. We don't know of what. Maybe the Sanhedrin. Uh, maybe he's a ruler in a synagogue. We're not sure what he rules over. Maybe a piece of land somewhere. But what we do know is this, is that hes he's a ruler and that he's young. We don't know how young. We don't even want to guess here. But one of the curious things about this, about this very first passage is that, listen, he calls Jesus good teacher, right? Like how many of you guys call Jesus that in your prayers? You open your prayers with good teacher, right? Listen, nowhere in the Talmud, which is a Jewish collection of stories from rabbis that are wrestling with Jewish texts and ethics, nowhere in that entire book is good teacher ever found. This is a curious way to introduce Jesus, and to start a conversation with Jesus by calling him good teacher. And then my, my eyes and my heart were drawn to this question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Now I've talked about this before. Just the thought of eternal life like blows my mind. Anyone else? Like when you just think of living forever. Everything has an end in our, in our world and our culture. When you think of living forever. Like there's no clock ticking down. It's crazy to even imagine that right? And I started thinking about, like, where does this concept, eternal life, even come from? Like, where does it originate? And these are the important questions that get us to deeper meanings. After some research, listen, we found that the very first time we see an implication in the Scriptures about eternal life is Daniel chapter 12. If you know anything about the Scriptures, that's well into the Old Testament. In our culture, eternal life is a pretty big deal. So apparently there was something happening... That wouldn't cause in Old Testament times there to be a lot of talk about eternal or everlasting life. Jesus comes on the scene, praise God, right? He, he comes on the scene and we see 29 times in Matthew, Mark, Luke and John this mention of eternal or Everlasting life. So obviously something gets escalated from the Old Testament to the entrance of Jesus on the scene. That talking about eternal life and everlasting life are drastically important. We only see three people outside of Jesus talk about eternal life. And this is one of them. Three. We see Peter and John tell Jesus... The words that you speak breathe of eternal life. We've seen it uh, another time in Luke chapter 10, in the parable of the Good Samaritan, the expert in the law asked this exact same question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Three. The other 26 mentions are by Christ, talking about what's He providing. The most famous, John 3, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him shall not perish, but have eternal, everlasting life life. Now, when you look at the difference and when you do some research, what you start to find, this is interesting, is that there were pieces of the Jewish culture that didn't even believe that there was an afterlife. Specifically, the Jewish sect that didn't believe that there was an afterlife, especially even an eternal life, were the Sadducees. They weren't around for, for very long, but the Sadducees didn't believe that there was a resurrection. And so if you don't believe that there's a resurrection, then you don't believe that there's an eternal life, which now, if you know anything about the Sadducees, we have a little bit of understanding in why their pious living was a little bit reckless. If there's nothing to live for, like if there's no eternal life or some kind of meaning of the afterlife, then what are we doing? In our culture, there are so many interpretations of an afterlife, right? Like some religions say you'll have your own heavens with like a thousand wives, right? Guys are like, where do I sign up? You know, no, don't. Sign up for that, right? No. Any religion that says that you get thousands of wives in your own heaven, do not you know, sign up for that. Uh, other religions say that you like, come back as a cow, right? My like heaven or a cow, you know? Like you pick, right? Other types of animals. Everything in our culture, we're hearing from all these different religions about what, they are, what their view is about an afterlife. Now, the Pharisees, interestingly enough... Believed in what? They believed in a resurrection. So despite the the Sadducees not believing in a resurrection and an eternal life, there were other Jewish sects that believed that eternal life was real and legit. What does it mean for you and I? Is that in our wrestlings with what it means to inherit eternal life, we better be communicating properly the answer. We live in a world and in a time where the afterlife is talked about a lot and is pretty... um, It's a pretty famous topic. And so you and I, our eyes should be gleaming because Jesus is asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And He's going to answer the question. And so for you and I, what does it mean? That the answer that He gives is one that we should be repeating that ultimately what He says in this story is what we should be directing the culture to. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus is going to answer this rich young man, this rich young ruler. And when He does, it means that you and I better be communicating correctly. Because I'll tell you what, even in the Christian circles, when people ask, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Can we agree there's a whole lot of slew of answers that have nothing to do with Jesus? And so people are walking around thinking that to gain eternal life, it means this or this or this in this story. With the real Jesus, with the real rich young ruler, we get a real answer. Verse nineteen. I love Jesus because he's always asking awesome questions. You know, why do you call me good? Jesus says, "No one is good except God alone." You want to talk about curious verses, right? The first time you read this passage, you're like, "Whoa, whoa, 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 whoa!" Is Jesus questioning His deity right here? Like, no one is good except God. What is Jesus saying right here? Like, why do you call me good? Don't you love that? And you can picture the rich young ruler. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Is Jesus' response, you know? This isn't a question of Jesus' deity at all. In fact, listen, He sees right through the heart of the rich young Ruler, and he asks him, very poignantly, "You use the phrase that's weird, good teacher." And what he asks the rich young ruler is, "Do you have any idea what you just said? No one is good except God alone, and I, Jesus, standing before you right now, am." God, and so when you, the rich young ruler, look at me and call me good teacher, what he's asking the what he's asking the rich young ruler, do you have any idea what you're saying? Do you know what you've just said? Or is it just empty flattery? Right? Like this guy is a good teacher. and So I'm going to call him a good teacher so that his ego will boost, so that he'll more likely spend more time with me. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? It begs the question of you and I. Do we have any idea what we're saying? Sing a lot of songs. Pray a lot of prayers. Talk a lot of Christian rhetoric. Is it just because we're trained properly? Is it just because we've spent enough time in Christian circles to sing the words appropriately? Is it just because ultimately that we've grown up in a Christian household and so we know the words to pray I feel like Jesus is asking you and I the same question. Do you have any idea what you're saying? Because when you call me good, you're calling me God. And if I am God, then everything changes. Then words aren't just empty flattery. How many times, friends, seriously, have you just prayed and it literally has been empty flattery? I better say that God's good so that He'll hook me up in this prayer. I better claim that He's righteous and faithful and use all the other words that Christians use so that ultimately He'll, he'll hear my prayer more. When deep down, the faith and the belief that He really is God is, is empty. I feel like He's asking you and I the exact same question He asked the, the rich young: Why do you call me good? Why do you call me faithful? Why do you call me gracious? Is it because that I am? Or is it because that's just what you've learned to say. in friends, church, there's a big difference. Aren't you tired of empty words? Aren't you tired of the routine, the rote Christian rhetoric? In this story, Jesus sees right through the heart of the rich young ruler and knows exactly his issue. And that's why he asks, why do you call me good? Is it possible that he knows yours too? Is it possible that you're doing a phenomenal job being a poser? Is it possible that you're doing an amazing job at sounding correct when deep down the heart has no deep-rooted faith and trust that He is who He said He is? Because if He is who He said He was, can we agree that there would be a lot of things different, my friends? He goes on, and He focuses here on the law, which is interesting. Verse 20. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony and honor your father and mother. Matthew adds, love your neighbor as yourself. It's interesting here, isn't it? Again, at first glance, in that question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus responds with the Ten Commandments, or at least a piece of the Ten Commandments. The second tablets. Or the parallel laws. Or more plainly put, all of the commandments that have to do with what? Relationships. He quotes the commandments that have to do with you and I and how we deal with one another and none about how God deals with people. Interesting, is it possible here that Jesus already knows His response and knows that this is the exact thing that this guy needs to see and understand? That he may have some things together because he doesn't murder. Look at the look at the young, young ruler's response, verse 21. All these I have kept since I was a boy, He said. Could you imagine being there with Jesus? He comes at you, you know. I, I know you know the commands. Do not kill, do not murder. Like the little like the boy, you know, he's like, yeah, like I've kept all those, you know what I mean? No stealing here, right? Like no murder here. It's interesting though, if you look in 1 John chapter 1, verse 8, it says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So maybe he's followed pieces of this law correctly, but Jesus is looking right through at the very heart of the guy. I have this, uh, I've already talked about it, this little girl named Avery. I've noticed something recently with her. Check this out. Avery has never seen Heidi and I fight over the remote control. We don't do it, okay? Any any fighters of remotes in here? Anybody? Okay. Justin, perfect, is the only one. Night. Now Heidi and I, we have this good arrangement with who gets the remote at what time and all those things. Avery never sees us like, like fighting over the remote, you know what I mean? Or, or Avery never sees us fighting over a blanket, you know? She just doesn't see us do that. But sure enough, my little girl this past Sunday at Lot family, I'm hearing her play with little kids, and I hear her arguing with little kids and she, the word that she's saying is, mines, you know? Mines! You know, and someone's trying to take Max. Many of you guys know Max, your little dog. We have eight of them. You need that. Especially when she gets the flu. That was essential, right? She's chucking on all of them. We just throw them in the wash. we got another one. But people are trying to take Max. She's like, mines, mines. She's never heard Heidi and I, like in a fist fight, you know, screaming, mines, mines. She's She's never ever heard that, right? She was born despite her beautiful smile with a nasty heart that is turning towards selfishness without even hearing it, without even seeing it, without even hearing the word minds, her heart is already saying, I don't want to share. I want all of what I have. For those of you guys that are parents, like what I've noticed about parents is when kids don't share, it's like the one thing that embarrasses us. Like, oh, you know, she normally does better, you know? Like... Like you want your kid to share, you know what I'm saying? Like you're, you're always like making sure that your kid shares. And so, you know, I sat every down and I said, listen, you never say mine again, you know what I mean? It's going to be a horrible reflection on me. <laughs> this rich young ruler, he's probably talking about what what's now called in Jewish terms the bar mitzvah, this rite of passage from a boy to a man. I haven't, I haven't done, I haven't done any of these since this rite of passage, since this moment from when I was 12 to 13, whatever. But friends, you and I both well know that this rich young ruler is in desperate need of something and he's missing it. Verse 22. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. At first glance, you look at this passage, and what do you think? You still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give it to the poor. Like, I don't remember that in the salvation teaching, right? I've never seen that on a track. Like, I've never heard that when people are trying to communicate the gospel to people. Sell everything you have and give it to the poor, and then you're saved. So what is Jesus doing here, right? At first glance, you're like, is he communicating works? Like, what is he doing? And then he says, then come, follow me. It's interesting, isn't it? Now, this rich young ruler clearly knows the law very well. Being a notable person in society, knowing the commandments Jesus refers to. It's one thing to know the law And it's another thing to understand that the fulfillment of the entire law and prophets is standing before you. It's another thing to be able to communicate the law and the Ten Commandments. It's another thing to know that Jesus, the fulfillment of the law and the prophets, the entire Old Testament, which was pointing to every word, was pointing to Jesus, that He's now standing before you. And so is it possible that what Jesus is communicating to this rich young ruler is this, I am the law. And so, to understand what it means to inherit eternal life, you must understand that me, the law, is completely fulfilled. That I am your only answer. That following me is all that you've got. And then, you listen to the words that I have to say. Now, what if he was disobedient? Sell all you have and give it to the poor. What if he's disobedient? Is he being disobedient to the Ten Commandments? Not necessarily by the letter of the law, but because the law has now become Jesus in the fulfillment of it, what he's doing is he's being, he would be disobedient to the call of Christ. It's just like each, each and every one of us here. Hey, uh, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go to Africa and be a missionary. Sell all you've got and go to Africa. Well, what happens if we don't do that? Jesus said, he was telling his disciples in Luke chapter 14 verse 33, Unless you give up everything you have, you cannot be my disciple. The connection is, is I must be Savior and I must be Lord. And when I'm Lord, if I am a good teacher, you listen to what I say. You see the connection now. Why do you call me good? If I'm a good teacher, when I say sell everything you have and give it to the poor, no questions asked. So how about you? You're in your room, laying in bed, Like, many of us have, like, these awesome God moments, you know, just laying there almost half lucid, and all of a sudden we have this sense, is, God, are you, like, you're calling me to do this? Like, you want me to go and knock on the door of my neighbor, which I've lived here for two years, and I've never even said hi to. Tomorrow, you want me to go and just, just say, hey, I'm your neighbor, and, like, here I am. God, like, you don't understand, like, I'm an introvert, you know? And I, like, my... My sewage is already over-poured into their yard. I'm sure they're angry. You know, like we just have this weird relationship already. Well, Well, what is it if we don't go? What are we saying? I know better than you, God. I know better than what your Word says. I know better than what your will is. And what Jesus tells the rich young ruler is to inherit eternal life, I must be Savior and then I will be Lord. If Matthew was there, One of the disciples, can you imagine him remembering his moment? Oh, yeah, I remember that moment for me. I was a tax collector and I was holding on to the coin, and Jesus said, Come and follow me. Leave everything you have and come and follow me. And I dropped the coin. If Peter was there, and he was, because we're going to see him respond in a second, I can imagine him remembering his moment, that moment. Leave everything you have, come and follow me. Yeah, Yeah, I remember I was a fisherman. We weren't catching much, we were really good at bluegill. And Jesus said, like, come and follow me. I remember that moment for me. Many of you guys know I accepted Jesus when I was seven years old, sleeping in the same bed as Brianne uh, when she was five. I was seven. I was afraid of the boogeyman just to be vulnerable with you. And uh, I remember looking out at, at the stars and just understanding that God was big and he was great. And so I went and got my mom. She's here tonight and just said, Mom, who is this God? I accepted this idea of a big God with big biceps. That's ultimately what it was. And as time went along, I spent the next five years in that same reality. When I was 12, listen to this. When I was 12 is when I had this moment. We just moved to a new town. And I sensed that God was starting to teach me about sacrifice and obedience. He's not just a big God with big biceps, but He's calling me to this separate, different life. My pride and my arrogance, athletically especially, were starting to raise. And I'm not saying that this is always a sign of God's trying to humble me, but I broke out in acne Alright? Anyone else when you're a teen? I mean, the acne of death came upon me, alright? If you would have seen me when I was, I, I wish I had a picture. I mean, it was horrendous. I mean, it was bad. Have you guys ever heard of Accutane? Okay? You're, you're all embarrassed to admit it. You know what I mean? You're like, I took it too, right? You take Accutane, like, you're supposed to literally drink, like, four gallons of water a day because it just dries out all of your pores, you know? And so, I'm here, I'm a new kid in town. I'm like, God's teaching me about sacrifice and obedience. I've just broken out in this horrible case of acne, which has completely ruined my social status. And I have this moment where I'm sitting in my room and I just feel like God's saying, you know what you need to do? I want you to go and I want you to talk to some people at your church and I want you to start a youth choir. I couldn't sing, still can't. Led worship for seven years, couldn't sing then either, you know? Seriously, some of you guys have my CD blitz. What up, you know? And so I went to some people in my church, and I was like, hey, um, we, we, we need to start a youth choir. They're like, you got, I can't even see your face, acne boy, you know, I was, sorry, sorry about the blemishes. And what, what started happening was, what started happening was, is God used that, and three months later, I stood in front of the church for the very first time in my life, 12 years old, sharing my testimony. And it was in that moment that this moment where I was like, God, like you want me to leave it all behind, right? Everything. Yeah, I do. And since I, since I was 12, just never turned back. Is it possible that this moment right now, we're studying the scriptures so that each of you will remember that moment? Do you remember? Some of you don't because you've never had that moment. You've never sensed the moment where a Savior, a Lord God was saying, leave it all behind. But for the rest of you, do you remember it? It was tasty, wasn't it? You remember it like it was yesterday. It makes your heart beat. Is it possible is it possible that some of you tonight need to be reminded of that moment? Some of you tonight need to be reminded of the moment when he said, give it all up. And willingly and obediently, you did. You didn't have the power to do it. I was a little 12-year-old punk. And still, because of the power of the Spirit, all of a sudden this youth choir, which had the cheesiest name ever, Impact, like, grew to 50 members. And we were singing all over the place and people were coming to Christ. All because Jesus said, I want to use you. You remember that moment? We need to be reminded of that moment, church, so that we can be renewed in that moment tonight. Leave everything you have. Sell all you got. Leave it all behind and come and follow Me, is that what you want? Why do you call me good then? Why do you say that I'm a great God? Oh, you're a great God, but... Right? The rich young ruler responds like many of us would and will. Verse 23. When he heard this, he became very sad. Of all the descriptive words there, you know... Why sad? It's like the least... If you look it up in the Scriptures, not used a whole lot, you know? It's like the least descriptive word ever, right? There's a Greek phrase, and I'll share it with you earlier. When he heard... Or later, when he heard this, he became very sad because he was a man of great what? Of great wealth. And Mark, we see that his face gets long. The word, the Greek word here, literally means to be overwhelmingly distressed. He leaves this moment. Overwhelmingly distressed. If you're a Pharisee, how do you leave this moment? Most often you leave this moment angry, don't you? Like, are you kidding me, Jesus? Why would you call me to do that? All I need to do is follow these laws. If you're obedient, how do you leave this moment? You leave joyful, you leave excited, maybe a little bit scared. You're like, okay, this guy leaves in between. He's not angry He's not joyful, he's overwhelmingly distressed. Why? Because deep down, he knows that this would be good to sell all that he has. And deep down, he knows that what he has is in his mind giving him so much. He, in this moment, is caught in this war of the soul that many of us have experienced, even daily this moment where our spirit and our flesh are just raging war, in this moment he is overwhelmingly distressed because he's a man of great wealth. And Matthew and Mark says that he went away. He left. The issue for the rich young ruler is that the grip of greed was more for him than what Jesus could ever give him. Can I say that again? The grip of greed was more for him in his mind than what Jesus could ever give him. Scripture talks about greed a lot in some pretty drastic terms. Ephesians. Put this up for me, Andrew. Ephesians uh, chapter 5 says this, But among you, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Verse 4. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. Verse 5. For of this you can be sure, no immoral, uh, imm- 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 immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a man is an idolater. has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ? And of God. Interesting. Next, uh, next slide. Colossians chapter 3 says this. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and what? And greed, which is what? Idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming. It's one thing to say to, to you and I right now. Yeah, we're just not willing to give up our stuff. We like our stuff too much. I love my stuff, you know. Like, I'm, I can relate to this guy because my stuff is just good. And it's another thing. It's another thing to be called an idolater. It's a whole new ball game to look into our souls and to say that our grip of greed has caused us to become an idolater. Do you know that the closest English synonym for the word idolater is adoration? Adoration. This rich young ruler, listen, had gotten to this place where he adored his stuff, his wealth, which if he was young, it may not even have been given, it may not even have been something that he earned. If he was young, it may have been inherited wealth. That he had come to this place where he adored his wealth, and he had become an idolater. The literal definition of idolatry is to worship something in the place of God. Worship. Can I share a few things scripturally about idols? 29 idols by name. We see them from Exodus chapter 32 in the golden calf to Acts 19 and Artemis in the Ephesus land. 29 of them by name. Idols in Scripture, the worship of idols, caused people to burn children. Caused people to cut flesh off one another. Caused people to build golden structures and huge monuments and Kiss them, and bow to them, and worship them, and an idolater scripturally is called someone who has forsaken God, someone who's forgotten God, someone who's polluted the name of God, someone who has literally taken their care of God and kicked it out of the window. So now, can you see the drastic implications of a rich young ruler saying Jesus? I want this instead of you. It's not that he loves his stuff. It's that he has an idol. And an idol, scripturally, my friends, is no little thing. Can I ask you? Can I even begin to think about you and I living in American culture, what it looks like to see our stuff As something that would cause us to build something figuratively and worship it. That we would not burn children, literally, but because of idols set up, cause our kids to grow up in the same consumeristic mindset. Look at what Jesus responds with. This This is beautiful. Verse 24. Jesus looked at him and said, How hard is it? Oh, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Many of us have heard this before, right? Can you picture that? A camel going through the eye of a needle. Many people have tried to like justify this story. Well, it's actually the door on the Jerusalem wall and the camel would just kind of have to shrink down. It was a way of saying, like, well, it actually is kind of... No, no, no. He's literally meaning here, it's as hard as a camel. Big bumps, humps, you know, all those things. Going through this, and I'm not a sower person, but literally go through the eye of that. So many of us right now would be like, yeah, yeah, this is a great passage for, and there's some wealthy people going through your minds. Yeah, this is a great, Bill Gates, he needs to read this. You know, this would be impactful for his life, you know. You've got some people in our church that have some more grip, whatever, you're thinking of those people. In America, the person on the street, homeless, has more wealth than what percentage of the world? Friends, we don't even need to go in this, in, into the statistics that the poorest of the poor in America, many are still way wealthier than the rest of the world has even thought about. So this passage, a real passage to a real guy 2,000 years ago, is put right in you and I's face. Have we become idol Worshippers so consumeristic that our stuff has become what we worship, that our stuff has become what we build monuments to, that our stuff has become what we kiss, that our stuff has become what we adore, that the depths of our souls adores our stuff so much that we would say, Jesus, this stuff means more to me than anything that you could give. Why do you call me good? Why why do you call me a good teacher, a faithful God? Now, some of you guys are like, so what do we do? Like sell all of our stuff and give it to the poor? I don't know. What is he telling you to do? I'll tell you the first thing that we do is we surrender everything that we have. And we repent for idolatry. Are you guys with me? It's one thing to say we struggle with hoarding our stuff. It's another thing to call us idol worshipers. Are you guys understanding this? And when we become idol worshippers, we have a great need to repent of that. Because biblically, it's a wretched thing. The scripture goes on, verse 26. Those who had heard this asked, who then can be saved? Why would they ask this? Matthew and Mark say it was the disciples who asked this. Who then can be saved? If the rich can't enter. Why? Because there was a Jewish, ancient, Old Testament understanding that what? Money and wealth was a sign of what? God's blessing God's abundance so if he just says it's so hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of God and by the way what he's not saying is that it's impossible but what he is saying is the more that you have the easier it is to take that more that abundance and make it an idol and so now that disciples are like who then can be saved like if it's not, if it's not the people who have a lot of cash a lot of grip that you bless with abundance then who is it who, who can be saved then? Jesus says this. What is impossible with men? What is impossible with men is possible with God. Jesus hits the fadeaway three. You see what I'm saying? Because, like, I'm, I'm like looking at my life and I'm like, how am I not an idol worshiper? I mean, I'm so much at times consumed by my stuff. And Jesus brings it back to Himself like He has a good job of doing, like He, continue to, like he continues to need to do. Uh, what's impossible with you, and it will be, to make your stuff less than me is possible with me. And so at the end of the story, what does Jesus say we must do to inherit eternal life? To trust and believe that by grace, through faith, in a God that takes the impossible and makes it possible that our life can be surrendered to Him. Because that's our question, right? Is it possible to surrender to Him? Is it possible to say, Jesus, it's all yours. I don't have any... Is that even possible? And what He says is, it is through me. It is. It's possible to surrender. It's possible to give your kids to Jesus. It's possible to give all that you have to Him. It's possible to say, none of me is me. It's all yours. And it's only possible through Him. And the rich young ruler in that moment missed... Jesus, he missed it. Are you tonight? You're like, yeah, yeah, Like, I don't want to be an idolater. Like, that's bad. Verse 6, because of these things, the wrath of God is coming. Like, no dice, you know? Then your answer is Christ. I love Peter when he responds with this in verse 28. We have left all we had to follow you. So Peter's like, hey, Jesus, um... He's basically looking for some affirmation here, right? He's like, um, okay, we did that, right? Like, is that us? Do we, we give all that we had? Did we do this? Like, is what we just did for you in our life, is that, is that what this looks like? I tell you the truth, in verse 29, Jesus said to them, No one who has left home, or wife, or brothers, or parents, or children, for the sake of the kingdom of God, will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come. And he ends where he started eternal life. We were talking about this as we were studying. It's interesting here, we see the word wife. Some of your husbands are like nudging your wife. You're like, see, I told you I can go to Africa for eight years without you. You know what I mean? Like, I don't think that the scripture's saying that. But I think what it is implying is that some of the disciples, maybe for a season or a time, did have to leave it all. And he tells us many times in the scriptures, right, about our family must be less than what Christ is calling us to do. And so what he affirms, Peter, is he says, yes, you have done that. You have released it. You have let it go. You're not an idolater, at least of your wealth. My friends, we live in a culture. Put the the Romans passage up. Let me show you this. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And this is talking about idol worship in the first part of Romans. And worshiped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. Amen. Friends, in our culture, listen, we are exchanging the truth of God for a lie. And the lie is that this has something. And it's not just that this has something. Friends, can I, can I tell you the truth of God? This has nothing in comparison to the beauty, to the majesty, to the glorious riches of Jesus Christ. And so it seems ignorant at one point to say, well, of course we'll leave this and turn to that. My friends, tonight there is a call for us as a church living in a consumeristic culture that's saying, minds, minds, minds. Tonight the call is the last words of 1st John. The last words of 1st John, the very last sentence of 1st John says, to rid yourself of idols. 1 Corinthians 10, flee from idolatry. The call tonight, my friends, that all of Scripture was calling to is that this adoration and worship of this will lead to condemnation. So how do we do it? How do we not get wrapped up in our stuff so much that we would miss Jesus? We idolize Christ. We adore Christ. Christ. He becomes every passion, every ounce, every, like Jeremy was saying, every bit of us. And that, like Jeremy said as well, and the scripture says, is only possible through Him. In the words of First John, may we flee and run from idolatry. Let's pray. God, you tell us in the Gospel of Luke that we can't serve both you and money. And I pray, Lord God, that us today, living in a culture that has set up graven images and golden calves and called them houses and cars and computers and phones, Blackberries and MP3 players, God, I pray that You remind us, each of us tonight, of the moment that we've had, and maybe for some who've never experienced that moment, I pray that that moment may even be now, to leave all that we have and to turn to You as Christ. I pray that You remind us of the commitments that we've made to You, the covenants that we've made to You, that we will worship You and You alone, that You will be our focus, that You will be our adoration, that You'll be our worship. God, I pray that You'll ask each of us tonight, do we even know what we're saying? And I pray, God, that this church community will learn how to better know exactly what we're saying as it pours out of our heart that you are a good God, a faithful God, a worthy God. God, humble us and remind us of your faithfulness tonight. Let's stand together and respond to Jesus.